Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. In this episode, I talk with Beatrice Infante, a corporate governance expert based in Silicon Valley, with a 30-plus year career, including CEO and leadership positions in multiple high-growth business areas, with a focus on enterprise software, software as a service, and communications. She currently serves on several public and private company boards. In this podcast, we talk about the roles of CEO coaches and mentors, distinctions between serving on public and private company boards, recommendations on how to handle the current downturn, cybersecurity, the role of the board in strategy and innovation, and the evolution of ESG and boardroom diversity. Also, I'd like to thank Lisa Spivy and Heli Hacken from the Northern California chapter of the National Association of Corporate Directors for facilitating this connection with Beatrice, who's a member of that NACD chapter. If you like the show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can find all the show notes on the website boardroom-governance.com, and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com. Beatrice, it is so good to see you and to record this podcast with you. We've had different conversations and I was very excited about you coming in the Boardroom Governance Podcast to share your thoughts on governance and other Silicon Valley matters. So thank you very much for taking the time and joining us. Well, thank you, Evan. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, looking forward to a very great uh, podcast here. All right. So I typically, first of all, go into the personal and professional background of my guests. So let's start with you. Please tell us where you're born, where you grew up, and then we'll move from there to your current roles. Great. Uh, well, I view my life as sort of a sequence of very fortunate events. A um, uh, lot of good luck that has got come my way. So I was born in Cuba. My parents were professionals. My dad was a doctor and my mother was the uh, principal of an elementary school. And when Castro took over, they saw the, the way the wind was blowing and sent me out of the country. They could not leave because in addition to being a doctor, my father was also part of the previous guy's military, who was colonel. And uh, so he was not allowed to leave or most of my family for another five or six years. So I lived in New York with my aunt for a while. And then I moved to yeah. Miami. And this was in the late 60s, early 70s when the big push for putting man on the moon and all of that great space stuff was mm -hmm. happening. And the National Science Foundation decided to start a pilot program in Miami to raise the next generation of scientists uh, to be more scientifically oriented. So they had, they started recruiting us. They took, they tested the top two kids of every middle school. And so starting in eighth grade, I was part of an advanced math and science program that lasted through my senior year in high school. And the benefit of this, in addition to taking a lot of college classes in math and science, was that for the summer between my sophomore and junior years in high school, we had a sequence of eight one-week sessions learning something in industry that was new. And one of those was computers. <laughs> so I learned to program back in 1970 or so when nobody had even heard of computers, much less knew what they were, on a UNIVAC 1106-1108. And uh, so I learned Fortran programming and I was pretty good at it. I enjoyed it. Then when I was accepted to Princeton, part of my uh, financial aid package included mostly scholarship, but included 
the requirement to work on campus. Most kids got put into uh, sort of uh, helping out in the kitchen at the eating facilities. But since I knew programming, uh, as I they knew from my application, I was given a job at the computer center where I then worked for the next four years, initially as a quote unquote clinician, which was someone who would help people whose programs weren't working uh, debug their programs. And there were a handful of us. And we were, yeah, I'm still very close friends with, with many of the folks that I knew there because we were a small community of people really in love with computers. Our eating club was conveniently placed in between the engineering quadrangle where we took our classes and the computer center. So we could just sort of eat dinner on the way to the computer center. Wow. And there was a, you know, most of the folks that I knew then were still good friends, went on to be founding engineers at places like Sun. One of the folks that hung out with us, although he wasn't in a, a clinician, was uh, Eric Schmidt, who was same class as I was. So it was a really uh, a, a very beginning of an industry. None of us had a clue what you could do with computers. I just knew it was fun, and that's what I decided to do. Then I went to Caltech and refined my area of expertise initially to um, software that helped companies design more sophisticated integrated circuits. And so my first job after Caltech uh, grad school was with HP, which at the time was a, a high flyer. I then went on to co-found a company doing a sort of, think of it like an iPad, but in uh, in 1990 uh, startup. Uh, but we, we won by best product of the year covers and, and so on. But that was also where I learned my first lesson on venture capital and the bad things that they can force good companies to do, i.e. growth too fast. So we can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I'd love to touch on that because that, you know, it's interesting you say that 20, 30 years later, things are still somewhat the same. So uh, we'll yeah. go through some of those themes and governance they, there. They, they don't, yeah, it's just it's part of the business model. And so it's not something you can quote mm -hmm. unquote fix. I then went on to work at Oracle, eventually working directly for Larry Ellison. Uh, initially, I ran the open systems business units, which was uh, all of the Oracle products on Unix platforms. At the time, that was about 70% of Oracle's license revenue. And uh, I took that from about 800 million to a little under a couple of billion in about two and a half years. And then Larry asked me to personally lead all the emerging businesses, which included the internet at the time, which was just beginning. This is 96 mm. or so. Uh, so this is really when the internet was first coming into its own. Very exciting. Grew a number of products, uh, very, very high rates of growth year over year. And then out of that, I was recruited to be CEO of a company called Aspect Communications, which at the time was a market leader in something called a call center. And you can think of a call center as a million dollar refrigerator that handles all of your call routing from the telephone system to getting to the right agent. So if you've gone through a system that says, let me let me find the right agent for you, they're doing some kind of intelligence to get you to someone who is available and may be able to answer your question. The challenge with Aspect, um, very well established company. But I walked in the door and about six weeks later, they hit a really hard brick wall. Uh, Aspect was a what we would call today a GARP or growth at a reasonable price or value company. Steady 20% year over year growth. 
like Cisco, beat by a penny on the bottom line, they always met their guidance, but the market was growing faster than they were because they were following this, this path. But two things have really happened that caused them to hit the wall. One was a very, very rough product uh, transition for good reasons. They had moved from a Motorola architecture for their hardware to Intel and from Unix to NT. Great conceptually, but NT at the time uh, was really not fully ready for prime time. It was mainly aimed at smaller work groups. We were a six nines of reliability company. If your you know, dial tone doesn't work, people get really angry. And our customers were, we had, by the time um, my tenure there ended, we were 76% of the Fortune 50 were our customers. We had 10 of the wow. top 10. So was this a, a public company? Yes, it was public. Yeah, it was, it was uh, yeah. 400 million so or so at the time. And also I realized that was from 98 to 2003. So you, you went to the dot-com yep. boom and bust through that Yes, tenure. yes, I, uh, yeah, I, I could spend hours on that as well. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we had, again, 10 of the top 10 telecom companies, nine of the top 10 airlines, none of the nine of the top 10 commercial banks. Um, I mean, it was, it was the, the who's who of, of customers you want to have. So this rough product transition went from this older product that was now obsolete. Uh, the, the processors weren't being made anymore. So there was a, one of those inflection points that companies come through where you were forced to go a new direction. And the new product was backward incompatible, had fewer features, and most importantly, did not have six nines of reliability. We had custom patches from Microsoft because they desperately wanted an enterprise customer. We were probably the, the worst one they could have had at that point in time. You know, 98, 99 was not a, you know, when NT was really just beginning. So, um, so that was one problem. The other problem was that they had completely ignored the existence of the internet. They were in denial. And this happens with a lot of companies that know what they're doing. They have a great business model, heavy duty cash cow, and they miss what's happening in the market. And so the double whammy of strategically ignoring something that was really happening and having a bad product transition, they missed their earnings forecast again, six weeks after I walked in the door by 50%. So, so it was not a, not a good call. And I was on a last minute basis placed on the earnings call as Beatrice, you tell them how we're going to get out of this, of this problem because the CEO was a great CEO, but he was a hardware guy was coming on board to succeed him because he wanted to retire. So he was not the one who was going to paint the vision of the future we were going towards. So I set the company on a very different path uh, of a software and services company. Our first year reporting license revenue was 1999. That was 73 million. And in the year 2000, we reported 211 million of software license revenue. I changed the support model to be more of a software like Oracle and everybody else charging a 16 to 35% of your license fee. And the most important move I made was like Oracle to make the software platform independent. And that 
completely changed the equation. Uh, we were on a roll. We hit our highest ever levels of revenue and profitability and stock price. And then 2001 hit. And as you pointed out, 9-11 mm. was actually the culmination. The first two dice that fell was the collapse of the telecom industry, uh, WorldCom and a few others like those right. who were uh, we were involved in a hundred million dollar deal together with WorldCom servicing one of the large government agencies. We were 10 million of that, but it was still 10 million that we, we desperately right. needed. The internet collapse. Uh, we didn't have a lot of dot-com customers, but our customers had dot-com customers. So folks like Sun had an impact from that. And then with 9-11, we had three workforce adjustments that year took the company down from a little over 3,000 employees to about 1,300 uh, over the course of that year. But I had to pivot. I'd never, I'd always run high growth businesses. I'd never really looked that much at the bottom line because the bottom line always kind of took care of itself. Well, and that's a great point because we, we can revisit this. We are in a new dance cycle, mm -hmm. right? So what you went through in those years, a lot of companies are going yep. through uh, these days. Maybe there's a different... Uh, scale, but a lot of decisions and a lot of layoffs are happening in Silicon Valley. That's that's right. And so we we pivoted. I decided we were going to be a happy little cash cow, and uh, we were you know generating twenty five million of free cash flow a quarter on uh, revenues that were two thirds of what they had been on our high. But when you focus on growth, again, you leave those levels of of profitability for the future, uh, and that created some interesting dynamics. But uh, so after aspect, I thought I would retire, but after about a year, I got really bored. And so I became CEO of three privately held companies, which I took to successful exits. And then since then, I've been primarily sitting on boards, a variety of range of boards, both public company and private company. And then I also have a consulting business on the side, which I don't accept new clients anymore. I just have a handful, small handful left because uh, that takes up a, a lot of time. Working with CEOs, typically new CEOs, to help them reach the next level, uh, typically because their companies are either scaling because they're growing very quickly and they don't quite know how to grow their companies and delegate and grow a leadership team underneath them, or because the opposite is happening, something in the market or internally has occurred and they're retrenching and they're trying to figure out what to do and how to go, go forward. So uh, that's me. It's, uh, it's, it's yeah. a fun ride. But as I said, each of my accidental steps have placed me in a great position for the next uh, accidental step. Well, I love it because you are like the perfect guest for this podcast. I mean, all this governance experience, a former CEO, you've served on private boards, you've served on public boards. And so it's ideal to go through some of these issues that we'll talk about. I mean, you've obviously served as a CEO four times, you've been a strategic advisor, you've been a CEO mentor and all your boards. My first question to you is, each role is very different. And the question is, how do you handle each role? And distinction, maybe one distinction is the role of CEO mentor versus the role of a director. Now we know there are fiduciary duties, but I hear a lot of CEOs today that all have a mentor, all have a coach. How do you think about that role? You've obviously been a mentor or coach to some of these CEOs in your private business, but also on board. So maybe that's the first question that I'd like you to tell us more about. No, that's that's a great question. Again, fortuitous events. Um, in my CEO role at Aspect, I was obviously thrust into a role, and I'd been exposed to the board before. I mean, Larry Ellison had 
had me present to his board because I've done a number of things that, you know, he wanted the board to hear about, but it's not the same as being in the boardroom. So at Aspect, now I was thrust into a board and part of the job I had to do was to also remake the board because it was really more of a startup founder board than a Mm -hmm. large public company going through a massive transition type of, of board. And by the way, I'm thinking on the timeline here, this is pre-Sarbanes-Oxley, yes. so maybe you didn't have majority independent no, director requirements. They were independent, but they were not, how can I say this? They, they, they were just, that this was not their experience. So one of the directors, perfectly fine person, but he was running a small private company, double digit tens of millions of revenues in the furniture rental business. Okay, he had mm-hmm. not a lot to contribute to a public company doing a very sophisticated technological yeah. pro- uh, product selling to the Fortune 50. You know, it's, it's a very different uh, situation. Um, so I then became chair as well. And in my head, it took me about a year, year and a half to sort of sort out, okay, so the board is this more this collaborative thing where they're, you know, we're all equals because we're all board directors. But on the other hand, they can hire and fire me. And on the other hand, as a chair, I have the responsibility of restructuring the board. And, and how do I do that and not get them to the point where they want to fire me because they have they still have that skill set, right. uh, which is one of the reasons why it's it's actually good to separate the role of CEO and and chair. But because of that background, I, first of all, have a very, very clear, bright line between what is management and what is governance. So mm-hmm. in a board role, I can I have very little tiny feelers. And anytime somebody sort of stepping over that line, I, I sort of I can sense that. Now, mind you, sometimes it is necessary to step over that line, even in a public company for for very good reasons. But you should always do it a very deliberately and be consciously knowing that you're crossing that line for a specific reason, for a finite time period until some event happens. For example, a permanent CEO is named and you have interim CEOs and you kind of have to help them out because it's really not their expertise at all. So because of that, I feel I'm a better director in understanding where that line is. And then when I'm advising CEOs, it's relatively easy to put myself in their shoes and understand what challenges they're facing. And the key thing in mentoring is being a CEO is hard. (laughs) It's a very lonely job. You can't really confide in your board. You can't really, not everything, you can't really confide in in your management team either, depending on the, the circumstance. So it is helpful to have a CEO group that you share experiences with outside of work, but it's also helpful to have a a mentor who can sort of point out the potential pitfalls. And that's the important thing is you have to give the CEOs that you're advising and mentoring uh, information in bite-sized pieces that they can understand. Because the same way that you can read all about having a kid before you have a kid, uh, but the experience is, you know, once you're there is very different than whatever you may have read. Um, there are things that you can see that are going to happen in the horizon to either the company or in the person's evolution that they don't see themselves. And you can't immediately expect them to import your brain and your experiences. So you have to sort of counsel them. So 
one fellow that I'm still very much in touch with is now a private equity investor who was, uh, I had counseled him as, as a CEO for quite a while. The moment I met his chief sales guy, I, I realized this guy had to go because mm-hmm. he was just not suited to the role he was in. And I, I was honest with him and I said, frankly, I think this should happen. He goes, well, I don't know. I, I, and the board and this and that. I said, look, sometimes having the wrong person in a role is worse than having no person in the role. And he was very hesitant because yeah. he wasn't confident in himself to run a sales organization. He was a tech guy all the way. He even had a COO who was running a bunch of stuff for him. So he was very hands-off and very reluctant to put hands-on, even though I could tell the moment he put hands-on, he would be better at it than anybody that was currently there. So it took me about three, four months of gaining his trust and increasing his level of confidence before he was able to pull the trigger. And boy, it was absolutely the right thing to do because that person wasn't just not right for the role, but was actively creating problems. And so it was a very important transition to make. But that's where you sort of really do have to wear different hats when you're doing each of these different different roles. Yeah, it actually makes me think of Bill Campbell, who's been called yep. the CEO coach of, the, of, of Silicon Valley. There's a book called A Billion Dollar Coach, where they recount most CEOs, uh, big time CEOs, and everybody in between have these coaches, which is interesting. People in governance circles don't talk. It's like a separate silo of CEO coaches and governance. So that's an interesting role that you've had. Let's talk a little bit about independent directors in private companies. There is a huge difference uh, between public boards and private companies, in part because what you said, composition of boards is very different. In startups, typically you have the founders and the investors, maybe one or two independent directors, certainly as you get closer to an IPO. uh, And then if you go to a public board, it's everybody's independent, but the CEO typically. So what has been your experience, you know, on both ends and how do you approach your role? Because you end up being an independent director in both situations. Yep. And and so how do you approach those different roles? Well, first off, let me say, both are an equal amount of work. Don't let anyone ever tell mm-hmm. you that they're not. Yeah. It's just the work is different. So first of all, on a private board, you've got your investor sitting in the room with you. So you can have a very face-to-face mm-hmm. conversation that says, hey, what's your interest in this particular issue, right? So that's a, a shorter, a short fuse conversation. In a public company, I do think it's very important for directors to, as much as possible, have interaction with the company's shareholders. And I know not everyone agrees with that, but I, I feel that very strongly and that uh, you should get as a board uh, director regular updates on what the ownership profile is just so that you understand where they're coming from. You still have to do the right thing for the long-term best interests of the company, but it's really important to understand the voice of the shareholders so that you can be a proper fiduciary for the shareholders in the boardroom. And, uh, and so in this case, and let me clarify, because maybe not everyone knows the cap table of public companies, this is mostly BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, the large institutional investors, and also ISS and Glass Lewis or the proxy advisors. That's a different set of investors that you see in public companies than typically in private companies. Absolutely, yes. The, the large institutional investors uh, there are companies that have primarily retail investors, but I've never been on those kinds of boards. I've always mm-hmm. been on, on companies that have a majority, if, if not, you know, 80, 90 percent institutional, large institutional investors, like, as you said, BlackRock. And some of them 
And each of them has a different flavor. You have to understand what their investment profile is. Are they looking for high growth companies? Are they invested in you because they think you're a high growth company? Or are they looking more for value play where dividends are more important than you know strict revenue growth and profitability and, and so on is, is more important? So you do have to understand their the reasons why they're shareholders as opposed to, oh yes, a, a name that you that you recognize. But you do spend in public boards a lot of your time making sure that all the regulatory compliance items have been, all the I's have been dotted, all the T's have been crossed, that you have a proper internal controls group that is an adjunct in addition to your outside external auditor. So the auditor's role is to verify through various ways and means that what you're reporting as revenue and, and profit, et cetera, is actually true. Uh, your internal audit is also to do that preliminary verification uh, so that you catch things before the auditor does. And in addition, internal audit also has responsibility for what are called controls. So do you have proper IT controls? When an employee is terminated, do you maybe leave their email hanging around for three months, which creates an enterprise risk for the company? Because now that person can still get in your systems and potentially hack things from the inside versus the outside. So there's a, a whole controls function that really has no cognate inside a, a private company. Private company, you generally, generally, as you said, have a anywhere between two and six or seven VCs sitting around the table. And your role as an independent director is most often to bring a business perspective. Sometimes you help sort of smooth over some differences and some concerns. I think the, the perfect example is one of the boards I was on. I was explicitly brought on by the, I think it was series C or D investor, because he looked around the table and said, you know, this CEO needs yet another VC sitting around the table like a hole in the head. <laughs> so, uh, so he recruited me uh, as the first and only independent director. And I'll give you an example of the type of problem that I helped with. Um, the board, as you know, VCs have opinions, very strong opinions. Uh, in, in this case, they were very unanimously agreed that none of them liked the marketing guy at this company. He was very low key, not your typical brash, if you're thinking you're mad men type marketing person. Mm -hmm. um, he would just come in and present facts and data and so on. And so they just thought he was terrible. And they asked me to go poke poke that a little bit. And luckily the CEO and I got along really well. And I said, look, I just, I need to eyeball this myself. And I spent a good two, three hours with the, the marketing guy and the CEO and, you know, separate from the board and so on. And what I realized was the marketing guy was indeed very low key, but his role was to get data, uh, market information, do a lot of analytics, prepare great PowerPoint presentations because the evangelist for that company was the CEO. It was not the marketing guy. So that marketing guy was never expected to go and present to anybody. It was always the CEO. And he was really good at that evangelical aspect of being a CEO. So for that CEO, that was the perfect marketing guy. If he'd been a little bit less you know, able to represent the company or a little more shy, then no, that wouldn't have been the right marketing guy. So I went back to the investors and I said, great marketing guy for the CEO, stop bugging CEO because you're not, he's not going to change his mind and you're barking up the wrong tree. And they all backed off and said, that's, okay, that's, that's good. 
we understand and we trust your judgment. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great story. Okay, so you know what one interesting thing about what you said is the role of independent directors in private and public companies being different not only from a board perspective but regulatory perspective in silicon valley there's been this thought of companies staying private for longer and we've seen the the rise of the unicorn companies worth a billion dollars or more and i think the last time i saw there's a thousand two hundred unicorns worth about 3.5 trillion dollars whatever it is and some people are saying well you know maybe we should regulate these private companies more and there's some sort of arbitrage between staying private and public and in the pandemic, a lot of these companies actually went public. So we saw record numbers of uh, public listings, about 1,000 in 2021. Uh, this year, everything shut. But any thoughts on this idea of staying private for longer and going public? How do you think about that debate? That's a that's a great question. It's not an easy one to answer. And I don't think there's a an overarching answer. Um, I will say that too much regulation too early will kill companies. And mm -hmm. also that I think there should be more companies going public, that the incentives have shifted very much to staying private and then just sort of exchanging companies in between different private equity investors. So it's a, it's yeah. weirdly enough, almost a private public market of, of sorts. Uh, so I, I don't think regulating companies very early is a good idea. I do think that as you start getting closer to an IPO event, you know, maybe it's two, three years, four years in the future, you do need to start having a little bit more structure. But I think it should be a very gradual thing. I think it would be wrong to just pass rules uniformly regulating these these companies. In the same way that even in the public markets, you have slightly different rules for microcaps than you do for for large caps, because the mm -hmm. scale mm -hmm. of a you know GE or a, a Facebook or Google is very different than a, you know a small medical instrumentation company that's going public because it's out of cash and it's at a point where they need to go for a different type of investor and get some liquidity for in the, their investors. So I do think too much regulation is is just as bad as as not enough. I do think we've shifted so much to a lot of regulatory compliance for public companies that it's it become a disincentive as mm -hmm. I don't know how to fix the problem, but I, I do think it is not in balance today from I, an ideal mode where there's a lot of companies who are going public who deserve to be public. It's not good if you're going public with, I remember when I was at Aspect, it was a small company that had, I think, 3 million in revenue and it went public. I couldn't, it didn't make any money. It was, it made no sense as a public company, but in the, you know, the bubble, the height of the bubble, you could take anything right. public and I'm, I'm glad those days are now gone, but we've now shifted the other way where you've got to be, you know, a Tesla before you go public and that's not right either. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And obviously it's, it's a huge question. You know, one thing that has impacted both public and private companies is this down cycle in the economy. And we've seen a lot of tech companies publicly traded that have devalued about 50, 60, 70% and private companies as well. And so what are your recommendations, maybe in, in the case of private companies, when facing difficult situations like down rounds, like recaps, like sales, in a private company, you have preferred shares, you have common shares, you have different incentives from VCs. But what would be your recommendation to directors 
in these scenarios uh, where you are facing maybe in some cases conflicting interest because some investors have anti-dilution uh, protections and common shareholders don't have that? No, that's a, uh, it's a tough, tough problem. And I, I think I would say the same thing that I said in 2001 and in 2008, 2009, uh, and during mm -hmm. COVID, cash is king period, end paragraph, um, as a private company, you need to have enough runway to be able to run your business and you need to not, not run out of cash because when you run out of cash, that's when you have the draconian down rounds, pay to plays where everybody gets washed out and diluted, et cetera. And the advice I would give to those companies is, it is possible to get yourself into a situation where you are uh, unsolvable. <laughs> um, and that was something I learned very, very early on. Um, I was a director. I don't even have that on my, my resume because I wasn't on that board for very long. We actually had two very senior independent directors on that, that board. It was unusual. Uh, it was viewed as a, a high, you know, future high growth company. But, and I didn't understand that at the time, it was not a question I would even have thought to ask before going on a private board is what does your cap table look like? Because you just hit on the dilution, you know, the, the preferences and mm -hmm. so on. And it is possible to have a set of VCs that have mutually incompatible fund goals and no amount of anything will win against that. So this particular company, again, I didn't realize this until after I had resigned from the board, how this, how unsolvable this problem is. We had one VC that was, um, I'm not going to remember the exact details, but let's just, for illustration purposes, was on year 13 of a 10-year fund. We had another VC mm. who was on year two of a 10-year fund. Right. We had another VC that had a very small fund and hit some internal limits in terms of the amount of money they could put into a new company. So you can immediately understand that trying to raise another round when this company ran out of cash was going to be well nigh impossible and could really only be solved by some other investor basically ponying up a lot of money and washing everybody out. I didn't understand that. So, you know, the other person and I tried to keep working with the VCs and getting them to talk to one another and together rational arguments for why this is the best <laughs> thing to do and yeah. internally each of them was going eh, can't can't do it my my partners won't let me uh, my fund won't let me i can't so i mean eventually both the other director and i wound up resigning because it was an unsolvable problem and indeed what did happen is a new investor came in washed everybody out and changed the ownership yeah. of the company so that's where it gets very tricky being an independent director because you are still even in a private company supposed to be a fiduciary for the shareholders but when they're in the same room and they are never going to agree it just just gets very difficult to figure out what is even the right thing to do if there is such a right thing to do so you know you're hitting such an important point such a nuanced point that i think most directors don't not understand yep this in part because you have to really understand how the venture capital industry operates how these funding mechanisms operate what are the incentives of the different investors as you said the incentives of early mid or late stage investors may be different so that case is a perfect illustration 
of something that used to happen way more after the dot-com crash, which were washout financings. In fact, that term started at that time, and we may be seeing a new wave of this happening. And the role of the independent directors is critical in in that stage because... You know, you are there to provide an opinion that is independent, that without conflicts. And in a lot of cases, they don't even have independent directors. So there's a lot of conflicts going around. And I think if you're an independent director listening to this podcast, you should be very wary and understand very much the situation of who are the investors, what's the company before going into a situation like this. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. And that's a it's just a question I learned to ask, and I'm, I'm glad you, uh, you pointed out the dot-com situation. One of the companies that actually, as a partner that I worked with in one of the companies I ran and that eventually wound up acquiring the company I was running and then being acquired by Aspect. This was 10 years or 15 years after I had left Aspect, so it was a very uh, weirdly incestuous uh, set of relationships. But the CEO there was your typical dot-com CEO. He had a perfectly nice little as-a-service business before that was even really popular. But the VCs put in a lot of money, I think, on the order of $200 million. They brought in the go-to-market CEO and sort of put him in the CTO role. They grew expenses astronomically. And then when the bubble broke and everything else, they just washed their hands and said, sorry, we're not funding you anymore. He's patched together... I forget, a small amount of money, bought the asset. The company had grown to 100 plus people. I mean, they weren't making any money or whatever. He figured out the key people he needed to keep and he got the whole company down from a couple of hundred to 11, including himself. Mm -hmm. They moved themselves to Orlando, Florida because they were all young guys and they figured it was a fun place and very inexpensive place and he was profitable. And he never again took a penny of money from anybody. He grew that company to 40, 50 million from that foundation. And he owned, he and his team owned pretty close to 100% of the company. I think he gave out a, a small amount. And that became relevant because when he acquired us, of course, we had investors and they wanted equity in, they wanted both cash and equity. And he goes, nope, I'll give you cash. (laughs) <laughs> That's all you're getting. Uh, we did, uh, for those of us who had, we, we did get a little bit of, of equity in his company, mm-hmm. but several people who might then have invested in competitor companies were, were absolutely not allowed. So I was allowed to uh, keep equity because I had both uh, preferred and common common equity. Um, and that, that company turned out to be a little gold mine. <laughs> over many, many wow. years uh, because they spun off another company and we got shares in that company and, and it just, and that company got acquired by Cisco and it was a, it was a, a good thing. But he, Did that company ever go public no, or did they stay no, private? No, they stayed, they yeah. stayed private. Uh, again, he sold both companies, uh, both companies that he created out of this one company out of uh, at very nice, very nice multiples. Um, but he, he did the very hard thing, which was, 11 guys, and we're going to guess that we you know we have like a million and a half in recurring revenue, and 11 guys is all I can afford. Yeah, no, that's, that's again, a- another great story in terms of thinking about how this operates in the back end, right? Like in, in, in the engine room and in the boardroom, really. Um, talking about that, t- two questions. So one is, 
we've gone through maybe 10, 12, 15 years of a bull market, uh, certainly in private companies. We've talked about unicorns. And there was this mantra, for good or for worse, called growth at all costs. And we've seen some implosions, right? We saw Theranos. Well, so Theranos is a little <laughs> bit different because there's fraud, but that we work and others. And you mentioned growth even in your first company back in the dot-com. Now, that has been tempered, right? People said, well, it shouldn't be at all costs, right? There is growth because that's kind of the business model. But that's the first question. And second is something that I always get as a question, which is the role of the board? in strategy and innovation? I, I do think the board is essential, but I also think it's very different in both the the, pri in the private companies versus the public companies. So uh, you actually have sort of a, a, a two-part question, which is sure, sure, uh, yeah, sure. you know, growth at all costs. And I think there are some very tiny number of companies where that is somewhat appropriate. But the other mantra I have is that for the other 99%, it isn't. Because if you take an unprofitable business model and you multiply it by 10x, you have a 10x more unprofitable business. <laughs> unless you, unless yeah. you see some you know, tapering of, I can see profit on the horizon. I think we all remember Amazon in the early days when back when shipping costs kind of outweighed the cost of a book. Although they were smart, they were not shipping bags of dog food, right? <laughs> so the shipping costs weren't prohibitive, but still it was, oh, they're never going to be profitable, et cetera. Bezos in his head kept that line, which was many, many years out in the horizon of eventually I become very profitable, but he didn't really become profitable until Amazon services. And that was because it was enabled by his other businesses. So he had enough data and so on that he could build this very profitable business. So for some of these folks who are uniquely gifted, Elon Musk, you know, Bezos, Larry Ellison, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, they have that ability to look 10 years in the future or 15 years in the future and say, this is where my company is going to go. And they persevere regardless of the, the cost. Okay, I've just named a handful of people. The other 99.9% .9 of us are not that. <laughs> and a lot of folks think they are and pretend that they are. Uh, and then their businesses run into a great big brick wall because they're not that level of visionary that can extrapolate not just the products, but the markets and the financial underlying financial model. One of the things that I... I remember that really impacted me was an economist I'd listened to who was talking about the transition between um, uh, photographs, uh, you know, Kodak and, and so on, and digital pictures. Mm -hmm. And his analysis, which involved looking at the cost of chemicals versus the cost of a bit and looking at an extrapolation of what would happen to markets when the cost of chemicals effectively went down to zero, even though it was already very low, and what it would change in the entire ecosystem. And when you do that analysis, which really is only possible retrospectively, nobody was doing an analysis of the cost of chemicals versus the cost of computing uh, at the time, you realize that the benefits of having your images digitally organized 
even if they have less resolution, et cetera, is so far outweighs the cost of having cheap photographs that 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 market flips over. And by the time it flips over, if you're in the chemicals business and pictures printed on paper, you're out of business. You're too late to do anything about it. You have to be looking at that 10 years in advance so that you can plan for it. And that's why a lot of bookstores just flat out went out of business. Once Amazon reached that tipping point, they were far too late to do anything about it. They couldn't build up an electronic infrastructure. They couldn't do any of that. And there really was only one path from there. And that was down. So yeah. that's kind of one part of your question. The other part is, is what is yep. the, the role of the board in innovation and strategy? And for public company, the board has to insist on having that conversation because if all you're doing is, is approving that year's financial plan, say, you know, management wants to increase spending in X for whatever reason that year, you have to understand is X going to have a benefit three years down the line, five years down the line? What, what is, why are we doing that? Sure. Right. And you can't do that unless you have a context of what do you want to be when you are at your next level. And so you have to have what I call an arc to the business of this is where you want to land. And these are the operating stepping stones to get there because it isn't just enough to say, uh, you know, I know we'll talk about ESG in a moment, but you know, in ESG, we're going to reduce emissions by 50%. Well, that's a nice thought. <laughs> it's a, it's good on a poster, but you need to understand the concrete steps that are measurable, quantifiable, driven by metrics that get you from A to B. Because if you don't have that, if you just have as a nice goal, you can't assume that you can invent your way there or serendipitously find your way there. So I do think driving the thinking about long-term and how do you get, you know, do you continue, do you have room enough in your markets to just continue expanding with business as usual? It might be the case. In some cases, like with Oracle in the early days, there was a giant sucking sound from the market in terms of wanting relational databases on Unix systems. We didn't have to evangelize that concept. We didn't have to push it. It just, the market pulled us to 100% year-over-year growth. Okay. That's a very fortunate and unusual mm -hmm. situation to be in. So you have to sort of think, do we look at market adjacencies? Do we look at acquisitions? Can we organically grow this? How do we expand our business? Are there things we could do from a business model perspective? So back when Adobe used to be a license model and switched to an as a service, it was an incredibly painful transition. But then the stock did fabulously for 10, 15 years after that, because they made a very brave decision as a public company that they took a beating for three, four years in the public markets because you can't go from license model to as a service model and not have a big revenue impact and a cost impact and a bottom line impact. But on the other hand, it was the right thing to do. And they had the sort of the guts to do it and to mm. sustain that. Well, interesting. You mentioned Adobe. They just announced a $20 billion acquisition today of Figma. And I think the stock price took a hit today. But you mentioned something that I think we have to address. Because now there's a new mantra in town, which is ESG, environmental social governance. I happen to talk about this a lot in this podcast because 
particularly because institutional investors are really strong on this and, and the market is really strong on this. I think, I don't know, the number is $16 trillion or more of assets are focused on ESG. But what, what is interesting to me is that in the last maybe four or five months, there's been a strong push anti-ESG. Interestingly, coming on a political uh, side, but also some very well-known Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and, and founders and investors, such as Mark Andreessen, Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, are calling this out and saying, you know, this is not, you know, what people should be following. That pushback is really interesting. And there's also regulatory pushes, you know, from the SEC, there's a new climate change uh, regulation that may be, may be coming in. How do you think about this from a broad perspective? And I think there is a distinction this year versus maybe the last five, six years, which nobody kind of pushed back against ESG. Now there is, unfortunately, a politicization that is making like everything else in life in the United States polarized one side or the other. And now it's come into the forum of ESG. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on, on how do you think about ESG and how should directors think about this? Um, that's a great question. And I think it's not a root problem, but it is a problem. ESG at some level is a bucket of stuff. Okay. Environmental, social governance, environmental and social are two totally different topics. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So by the very, it, it's a, I, I view it as a failure of marketing, quite frankly, it does lend itself now to politicization because you, you have put two unrelated things in a bucket and both of them are things that are now being regulated by or plan to be regulated by the SEC. And if you go back to my early, too early regulation doesn't necessarily lead to innovation, at least to the opposite of that. I think there are benefits to the E focus. Let's, let's focus on E right now because Almost everybody who says ESG means energy, not the social stuff. So yeah. we'll, we'll come back to the S part of it later. But there is benefit to mandating some level of reporting. The problem is, and I, I liken it to back when Sarbanes-Oxley first came into existence, everyone was, oh, woe is me, the world is ending. Yeah, we have to report on all this stuff. How on earth are we going to do it? Um, and you know what? Everybody figured it out. It took two or three, four or five years, maybe. Um, it grew a whole cottage industry of consultants who now um, gave you an analytics around uh, executive compensation and other things that were now required to be reported on. I remember when I was CEO at Aspect, we didn't have an outside comp consultant. My <laughs> SVP of HR went to Radford and got some data cobbled it together, you know, gave me an analysis of, well, this is what we should be paying so-and-so and so-and-so. Um, and that was it. It was not a complicated committee, really. Now it is incredibly complicated. And most of uh, all the committees that I'm on where I'm chair of comp, um, you know, there's an arc to the, to the cycle. You got to look at the peer group. You got to do this and, and so on. But people have figured it out and it is not an onerous task anymore. However, compensation was something that was a process that existed, right? So you've got some data. Sometimes you just pick some numbers out of a hat, but there was a, a process there. The problem with measuring carbon emissions and some of this E stuff 
is there aren't existing processes. And so you're mandating, so mandating metrics that re report and formalize how you implement compensation is different than saying, hey guys, come up with some way that measures the carbon emissions of your supply chain when nobody's publishing those metrics today. So I think it will force companies to figure things out. But I also think because companies will be forced to report something, it's going to create a, a challenge that is already starting to happen, which is folks will start figuring out how to monetize the metrics that make it look like you're meeting your metrics, but you're not actually doing that. And that's right. already been reported on where, and I know this full time because one of the companies I ran, ENX Suite, we were in the carbon and energy management space 10 years before mm. it was popular. And, but the companies we had as customers were very large government contractors, very large multinational, uh, global, uh, you know, consumer packaged goods companies and so on. Folks who internally already measured emissions, um, you know, electricity consumption, et cetera, and had processes. And we just automated those processes. That software does sort of exist, but it requires a whole internal corporate process to develop that. So I think it's going to be a lot longer to really mature properly. And I would anticipate that five, six years from now, we're going to have regulations about not having your carbon emissions disguised because you bought some carbon credits from somebody else and you haven't actually done anything. And, uh, well, it's also interesting that that the SEC has a enforcement task force on greenwashing, right? Yeah. So there's going to be this push and pull on on how to uh, disclose this information, and the temptation, unfortunately, is going to be to make it seem nicer than what it is. As with cyber criminals, uh, I'm a strong believer in <laughs> in the ability of people to innovate to make money. Uh, in slightly not proper ways before people can figure out how to stop them doing that. I already see that emerging and that opportunity emerging in the carbon markets. And I think in the same way that stopping cyber hacking and cyber criminals and so on is, is surprisingly difficult today. I mean, the, the, the data for, uh, you know, growth of cyber crime is, you know, from I think 3 trillion in 2015 to, 10 or 11 trillion in 2025, that's pretty darn good wow, growth for a business. You know, you can now buy as a service frameworks on dark web for how to do cyber crime. Mm. <laughs> and so, um, and, and, and cyber attacks and so on. So I think just based on my experience, I think it's going to take a lot longer, even with enforcement, even with regulatory enforcement, before this really settles into a well-regulated process. Will it? Probably. But I think it's going to be a lot rougher road than people are currently anticipating. You know, one similar, or at least a line of comparison is, with the cybersecurity threat becoming so much bigger, there was a big trend, and there's still a trend, of adding cyber experts as board members. And uh, now people are claiming, well, we should add 
ESG experts as board members. And the problem is, what does it mean, an ESG expert? And we go back to, well, is it a, an environmental expert? Is it a social? What, what is a social expert? So that's interesting as well. But cybersecurity has been top priority for any board, mm-hmm. right? No, absolutely. And, and I think that, that you, you bring up two really good points, which is adding expertise to the, to the board and also where does the governance of this reside? And that's where the, the real problem with the E and the S together is one bucket is it becomes obvious. Um, but let's think back to cybersecurity. So when it was first mandated, the board had to have oversight over this. Everyone looked around and said, hmm, do we put this with the full board? Do we give it to the governance committee? Do we give it to audit? Probably not comp. Okay, what do we do? Um, and most people concluded that it properly belonged in audit because audit, you know, was responsible for everything that was published that went to the outside world. And so there was already a control mechanism in there. The problem is that if you've got three financial experts who are accountants on your audit committee, they know nothing about cybersecurity. And that's one of the reasons why I'm on every audit committee. (laughs) I'm, I'm at my max on audit committees. I can't be on any more audit committees because I actually understand cybersecurity. And because I was a former public company CEO, I'm technically a financial expert. I would never be a Mm -hmm. chair of audit, but that is the case. But most boards were not in that place where they had someone that they could plug into audit who was happy in audit, who could contribute to audit and was qualified and also knew cybersecurity. So many of them had to go out and scramble and get a cybersecurity expert, which they then put on the audit committee maybe not in the best fit possible. And I think that's what's happening. Um, we, we do that in one of my, the boards I'm currently on. We created an ESG committee. Um, and in that one, you know, it's, it is a company where we do have some control over the amount of recycling we do, the types of, of other kinds of things. <clears throat> um, but there is still a component in the audit committee, but it's purely the reporting of it and the working with management on, okay, what exactly are you going to do? You know, how do you create financial returns because you're now using uh, more recyclable materials, you're recycling more, you're using less water, whatever, whatever it is that you're doing, how do we, what are we doing? So what the ESG committee, or it's just actually E committee because we put the S in comp mm-hmm. where it kind of belongs. Uh, but the, the E part of ESG the operational part of it is in a committee and then the reporting of it is an audit. It's a very, it's a big company. So not everybody's going to have the luxury of creating yet another committee and adding yet another board member, but that's how we did it. And then the S part, which is really about human capital management and metrics and, uh, you know, things that you're doing to help benefit your social environment, uh, you know, the, the, the cities in which you have operations and so on that's a totally different thing than environmental. And most companies have put that either in non-gov or in comp, particularly because then it starts overlapping with things that are already being done in comp for human capital management. So I think that's how it shakes out. And I I would envision 10 years from now, you're probably not gonna have ESNG as a thing. You're gonna have environmental, uh, so like you have cyber, and then you'll have human capital and social and compensation issues as as a bucket because those two things don't really belong in a bucket. They just were conveniently placed there as new things that you need to look at. 
Yeah, no, that's a very good insight. And, and I think it, it makes a lot of sense. I know we could be going on and on on governance, and I'm tempted to ask you all these questions, but let me finalize on the corporate governance side with one question, which I think is very important, which is how diversity has been a focus on boards, maybe for the last five years, maybe uh, institutional investors for a long time have been pushing diversity on gender and, and race and minorities. California had a law, SBA 26, that was on gender, that was passed in 2018. Two years later in 2020, there was AB 979 that was focused on minorities with the same framework. But a court in LA uh, struck that down, and there was constitutional challenge to that. And NASDAQ passed a diversity rule as well that's also being challenged in courts right now. It's on appeal. But despite these legal challenges, there seems to be a very strong trend on improving diversity, both on gender and minorities on boards. What can you tell us? I mean, you've been serving on boards for a long time. You've seen corporate America for you know, 20, 30 years. Uh, certainly, you, you mentioned you were a CEO in the, you know, back in the dot-com. So you've seen this very close. How do you think about uh, diversity in boards and maybe these new challenges? And what can you tell us on this, in this regard? Um, that, that's a, it's a very complicated question. And one of the things that's difficult about this, and I've listened to, politi- to um, legal podcasts that uh, dissect the, the various legal aspects, is one of the challenges you have with diversity mandates is that you start running up to up into anti-discrimination mandates <laughs> and mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. there's there is a fine line there and our courts haven't exactly drawn the exact line they've drawn sort of a gray area where if you're in one place you're clearly discriminating if you're in another place you're encouraging diversity but there's a, a sort of a vast swath in the middle where it's really situationally dependent. So I think you're going to see some more of that where attempts to pass regulation uh, happen. Let's assume that in this current environment, these laws would not pass muster constitutionally because of uh, discrimination based on gender and race. And certainly with the Supreme Court, the way it is, I think most legal analysts would say, well, this wouldn't you know, pass. But I think that the question is, okay, do we need that, right? Like, it seems that most companies in California that were subject to SBA 26 didn't do it because of the threat of the sanction, right? Nobody challenged the law. And people said, you know, who's going to go against this mandate? Who's going to go against, no, we don't want to add any women on our board. No, we don't want to add any minority. That that would be like the wrong approach. So it seems like that idea of adding diversity is pretty much thought as a good practice everywhere even though they, you're not legally mandated. But maybe, I don't know, let, let me no, ask you. I, I actually, I think you're mostly right for maybe 60, 70% of the companies. I absolutely do not think that that is a universal uh, belief. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, look, because I've been in tech and computers from a very early age, it has not been unusual for me to be the only woman in a room of 200, 500, 1,000 people, you know, mm-hmm. all guys. Uh, so I'm, I'm used to that and the same, you know, as, as a public company CEO, I think in California at the time, there were three women CEOs in all of California out of however many companies that were in California, public companies at, at the time. Um, but I have seen what I've seen, you're right. The, the industry as a whole, the world as a whole is shifting in the United States. So I remember being in a, um, 
conference uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, and we were discussing this issue of di- diversity. There was the representative from uh, uh, CalPERS and CalSTRS who was emphasizing we want diversity on boards. And one guy who was on the board of a mining company said, I'm never going to put a woman on my board because uh, women, there are no women miners. Women don't know anything about mining. And some, there was pushback saying, well, uh, you need a cybersecurity because even then security was, was an issue. Are your miners really expert in cybersecurity? Maybe, or, you know, there may be threats to your industry coming from an adjacent industry. And if you don't have any awareness, situational awareness of the threats that could come at your company from other places besides mining, you know, you might want to be aware of those. So there are a lot of, there's a lot of pushback. There are a lot of studies that show that diverse boards yield better financial results than not, which is why people are pushing for it. But I would say I get a reasonable number of recruiting calls that from directly from a company. It's not usually recruiters are not quite this crass who basically, you know, pick up the phone and say, Hey, we're looking for a woman. I go, Oh, that's great. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> what skills would you like this person to have? Uh, are you looking for a financial expert, a cybersecurity expert, uh, someone who can advise on strategy or international relations? What, what, what are you looking for? And they go, well, you know, woman. And, and that's the end of the conversation because I usually then say, thank you very much, but <laughs> no. Uh, so I do think there are a set of companies I would not Silicon Valley companies because Silicon Valley is a very different type of place, but many companies in businesses that have been traditionally very male, uh, who have been, you know, companies themselves have been around for a long time. They have a set process and so on. And I think for them, the thing that's pushing them is not any kind of request from their shareholders or whatever. It's more the fear of regulatory stuff. And, oh, gosh, I guess we ought to put a woman on our board. But what I then have seen from someone, a woman I know who was put on such a board and then rapidly regretted it, they gave her busy work and did not actually let her be a part of the board. (laughs) And that's, you know, it, it still exists. I think it is receding. And I think as, as some of these folks who have been there in this sort of this very old fashioned mode start retiring and, and so on, I think that will change. But I, I, I think there's a long tail to this. I would agree with you that the, you know, the bulk of it, the 60, 70% is, is now actively believing in this and so on. But I think there's a long tail there. That's interesting. All right. I personally could go on on and on and ask you all these different questions. I mean, it's so interesting and you've got so much experience in all of these governance matters. But let's go into the rapid fire questions. What are the one, two, three books that have greatly influenced your life? Wow. Um, There's probably three that I would would name. One is going to be very weird. I guarantee no one else will go. Weird is good. Weird (laughs) is good. And that is uh, Caligula by Albert Camus. Uh, oh, which wow. is a book I like that, that I read in, I think it was third year high school French, uh, in the French. And the reason I remember it so clearly is that we actually went to see a play that was put on uh, by a French uh, theater troupe as part of our schoolwork. And it was so well done. And, you know, let's be blunt. Caligula was a psychopathic murderer, uh, <laughs> but Camus' brilliance is that he made you understand and sympathize with him. So you have this split brain effect while you're 
understanding that he's suffering, you know, again, this is the play, not the real human being that existed mm-hmm. a thousand, a couple of thousand years ago, but Camus manages to make you feel sorry for him while at the same time feeling repulsed by how repulsive he is. <laughs> and so that's not easy to do. So that was, a, that yeah. was one. Crossing the Chasm by Jeff Moore. I think Jeff was brilliant in identifying that the growth curve of companies is not contiguous and that there is this crossing the chasm problem that many, I've seen many companies that, well, we got our first 10 customers and it's great. And then they find that they have sold to the only 10 people on the planet that want to buy whatever it is that they have because they didn't think about broader base and how they grow beyond the first 10. They focus so much on those and you know, five or 10 customers, in my opinion, is the worst kind of customers to have because you're going to damage someone if you shut down the company and you can't get the next 90 because they don't exist. So that's that's sort of um, another mm-hmm. book. And then another one which I read fairly recently, which is uh, um, Ancient DNA and the New Science of the Human Past by D- uh, David Reich. And uh, it's just fascinating what big data has done to the science of genetics and be able to trace, you know, some of these people that existed that have no historical artifact record. I mean, there's one whole race of people that was in sort of Siberia, down, you know, from northern Siberia down to the Middle East, where we have like one toe bone from one child that was extremely well preserved in the permafrost, where we know they existed from the DNA trace and can now find traces of them in other populations all the way from Polynesia to, again, the Middle East. But we have no pottery, no records, nothing that ever indicated until the science of DNA uh, discovered that they existed because their DNA existed. So anyway, very cool book. Wow. Great books, great recommendations. Who are your mentors and what did you learn from them? I've always been fairly internally driven. I I know my own values and my own goals. So I've, I've been fairly unreliant on mentors, but... If I had to pick two, um, Ray Lane would be one of them. When mm-hmm. I joined Oracle, I was still very much a, a techie nerd. My my slide making consisted of six point font, making sure I people my in my audience totally understood um, the technology. And Ray was the exact opposite. His powerpoints consisted of eighty point font with one word on them: um, profit, customer. And the first time I saw him present, I'm like, what is this guy? But because of my role and, and his role, we actually became very good friends. And I started seeing him in action with customers. I remember one in the, uh, the customer visit center, where we had a very large global bank, the CEO and the CXO is there. And you know, I'm waiting because one of my guys, one of my VPs is going to present you know, some stuff. And I, I look at Ray and he's asking them questions about their business and seeing he's so unlike the typical used car salesman model that I had in my head of this is what a sales guy looks like. And at the end, and I'm like, did you even present anything about the products? No, I'm like, I wanted to like get up and say something, but I you know, wasn't going to do that. And at the end, the CEO of the bank turns around and says, great, love it. Uh, where do I sign? I'm like, what? <laughs> what, what just happened here? I didn't, I didn't even understand what Ray did much. So I, I, I figured I had to learn that. And in the course of that, I learned to not have six point font on my slides and, and a number of other things. So I really learned a lot from him. 
And the other was a, a fellow who ran when I was at HP, the, uh, the division that I was part of, uh, a fellow by the name of um, Merrill Brooksby, who sadly passed away fairly young in his, in his mid-50s. And he was truly one of the person you could say was a good human being. I think any of us would have just been willing to leap off a cliff for him. Even though we understood he wasn't the best operating guy, he didn't always get us the budget we needed, you know, and, and so on. And early on, I was running a project which was critical to the success of another project, internal project, to develop the next set of computer chips. Remember, I was in computer-aided design. And so I had a revolutionary product. I'd grown my team to eight or 10 people. And when you get to that size, you kind of need a manager for the group. And so I was getting a tremendous amount of pressure from my boss to become a manager. And I didn't want to become a manager. I, my view of managers at the time was that they went to meetings and I didn't like meetings. <laughs> so I didn't want to be a manager. But Merrill took me into his office and said, look, Beatrice, you know how important your project is to the success of the company. And, but you're going to be growing your team even bigger and you can't be both chief architect and chief coder and the manager of the group. You have to decide. And you've, you've hired a great team of Berkeley and Stanford PhDs and, and master's students that you could, if you decide that you want to do this, it will be the best for you, for the product. And because frankly, I'm going to have to bring a manager in above you and you will hate that because you won't want someone else calling the shots on your product. So you go home and you decide. So unlike the my boss, my direct boss, who was no longer my direct boss by that time, uh, trying to mm -hmm. like strong arm me, and I don't strong arm real well, Merrill showed me that this was actually in the best interest of the thing I really cared about, which was the project I was working on. And I became a manager, and you know I didn't look back on that, but that... I didn't appreciate how he sold me on this for a good 20, 25 years. It was a sophisticated way of getting me to see his way that, again, I didn't even really understand, much less appreciate for a much longer time. And so one day I was thinking, I said, huh, I see what he did now. That was pretty, that was pretty clever. He understood my psychology and how to convince me to do something that he wanted me to do that I didn't want to do. And so that was... Wow. Very instrumental. That was good. Are there any quotes that you think of often or live your life by? One that is attributed to Mahatma Gandhi, which I've had for forever. I still have a little quote you know, on my wall. Be the change you want to see in the world. I believe as a leader, you have to lead. And leading means sometimes you take the, the first bullets and the first arrows because no one will follow you off a cliff or up a hill if you're not willing to take the risks and and be the shield for the people coming behind you. So um, I view that that's my role as a, as a leader is to be that shield. All right, that's a great one. What is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? Most people will laugh at me. I, I One of the many things that I do, I have a fairly varied career as well as external life, but I, um, I grow roses. Um, and mm -hmm. I don't just grow, I have about 250 rose, roses on our property. Many of them are ancient roses that uh, have been recovered from the, the past and so on. They're house-eating house wow. roses. So these are 20-foot-high 
30 foot wide roses. Um, we continually have to replace some of our wooden trellises with uh, steel trellises or six by sixes because they're that heavy. And uh, I do all the pruning and all the taking care of the roses by myself. We have gardeners, but they don't touch the roses because that's just my hobby. Wow, I love that one. That's incredible. Finally, which living person do you most admire? Again, I don't often look for folks, uh, but I would I would say if anybody right now would be uh, uh, Zelensky in uh, in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I think he is backbone, and he is willing, as I said earlier, to be in the lead in a dangerous and highly volatile situation but you can't get people behind you if you're hiding in the bushes. And so I think that that is admirable. Yeah, no, certainly that's a, that's a great person going through a really challenging moment in the world. So Beatrice, thank you so much for your time. This was so much fun. I have to say it's been one of my favorite episodes. We went through many things uh, that are so deep into what boards do, both in private and public companies, Silicon Valley. Thank you very much. And uh, I hope to uh, meet you sometime soon. Uh, excellent. Uh, thank you very much. I really enjoyed this. Um, I have had kind of a very uh, diverse career and it's been fun the whole way. I've really uh, enjoyed every role I've had, even the ones that were failures, because you know you learn from your failures as well. Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can just find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan Epstein. You can also check out all the details related to this podcast on the website boardroom-governance.com and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.